everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Hey everybody, how are we doing? This is Wayne Dorban from beautiful, unbelievably pretty northern Colorado. And we are here for the Success in Environmental Consulting session. And this is a series or a course, if you want to call it that, that we are doing that I have a very simple goal, and that is to teach you however I can, from my experience, to help you if you are interested in having success with environmental consulting. Can you do it? As you see here, how do you do it? And can you make some money? Well, last week I gave a little introductory info. I'm not going to do much of that other than to just quickly say, you know, I hate people who try to teach about something they haven't done. That happens a lot out there. I had a whole bunch of college professors that did it, and if you guys went to college, you probably did also. Um, I've done this. Um, I was one of the pioneers of the environmental consulting industry back in the mid-1970s, and I was still a college student then, but I got very serious about it in the late 1970s when I was also a college professor. And I was in the right place at the right time. And I was able to start an environmental consulting business with a very small, I, oh, I had no money, by the way. There's no silver spoon here. So I did it all with what I could put together, which wasn't much myself, and then a very small loan by even those days standards through what's called the FDA, Small Business Administration here in the United States. And another person who became a very early partner with me, and we hired a receptionist, a person to be an admin person. That was 1978. By 1984, we had over 1,000 employees. And we did something that, again, in the U.S., is only done by quickly growing, very successful companies. We went public, which meant that we um, sold stock onto the stock exchange. And anybody with, I don't know what the minimum you could buy at that point in time was, but let's say a dollar, even could buy stock, you know, stock in our company. So, and I have built three separate environmental consulting businesses after that one. Um, and I'll explain why did I do three more. Why did I just stay with that? I'll explain that more later um, and different things that we talk about. So I have a little bit of experience with this. I've done this. This is not something I'm speculating about. I don't know the numbers, but... One of the things that you'll hear me talk about is that I have always liked to have staff, employees, independent contractors, you name it, that worked with me in this business whose ultimate goal was to have their own businesses. And other of my friends and competitors and others says, why do you do that? Why don't you, want just, why don't you just want somebody to work for you that, that doesn't really care about how well, um, you know, doesn't care about ever leaving. They just want to be an employee with you forever. Now, there's a role for those kinds of folks, but there's certainly people that never want to have their own business. And, and you've got to make sure there's places for those kinds of folks. And we had a thousand people on our staff, and that business that I founded has 10,000 people today. But when we had a thousand, I would bet only a hundred of those, ten of a hundred, ten percent, excuse me, of that thousand really did eventually want to have their own businesses. But what I'm more proud of than anything in the 40 years that I've been doing this 
is the, those people that went out and formed their own businesses and, and have successful careers today and some of them have already retired and you know, sold those businesses and don't have to do any business anymore. But that's what I'm more proud of. I have more pride in than anything. If, if some of you could make the decision to do this, can I do this? So yes. By the way, you see that I'm rather nervous with the cursor. I apologize back for that. I should stop that. Um, yes, you can do this. And, and you can only do it, however, if you have passion, you have a work ethic, and you have um, you have some technical knowledge. The technical knowledge is the least important. Uh, here's another thing that I used to tell people. I'm going to make a slide for this later, but right now I'm just going to say it. The best staff, the best people I've ever had that work with me or for me are people that have four characteristics. They have a work ethic that is excellent. They have loyalty that is amazing. They have technical skills, which are good. And they have essentially a, a huge desire to succeed. Which of those four do you think is the least important? It's the work, it's the technical skills. I've always found that I can teach people, or others in my team can teach people those. You can't teach very often loyalty, ethics, work ethic. And passion. Those have to come from deep inside you. So last week I, I gave a little bit about a definition of what is confinement consulting. I'm not going to repeat that. And we talked about what areas do consultants work in. And this and this is you know everything because a lot of people just put consulting in a much smaller box. And we talked about in the environmental area. The difference between generalists and specialists, and then I talked about these areas: soil, water, air, the built environment, and and working with non-human organisms. Oftentimes, that would be ecology. And I stopped on this slide. And this is where we're going to pick up today, because if you, if last time I had several things that I said, if you don't take away much more than what I talk about here, and I gave you, I think, three different things, I said those would be the best things you could take away. Uh, by the way, I like to answer questions as I move along, and there's been a bunch of you coming in since I started. Um, please. Put your questions in the box anytime you can. I'm doing this alone tonight. I didn't say that at the start. This is the very first session we've done in the history of ETH that Mark B from Bangladesh um, is not here. And I'm going to switch real quickly to another slide. Mark is not here because he is celebrating ETH. And that is a Muslim holiday that uh, celebrates the end of Ramadan. And he takes very few days off, but this was a very important day for him. I have huge respect for it. So I am doing this alone tonight. And, um, and so it would be much easier if you guys throw out questions as we go along. And if you want, you'll have some at the end too. But, but I'll, I'll keep looking for them. If I miss your question, don't, don't worry about it. I'll catch, it, catch up to it. Um, and then also, don't be shy. Tell me where you're at in the world, and then secondly, you can put in why you're at all interested in this topic. What is you're trying to get out of this? So if you do both those things, I would greatly appreciate it. So I'm gonna. This is a. a this is this topic that we're gonna do right now, which is talking about what specialists do and the scientific process. I'm at least gonna spend today on it, but I might even spend next week. I want you to understand the scientific process in an amazingly good way. I want you to know it like it was the back of your hand. 
And it's important because if you're going to be a consultant and you're going to help people with your expert advice to solve their problems, you've got to understand how you're going to do it. And it's going to involve all of these steps. By the way, this isn't the scientific method. Notice I didn't put that up here. This is the process. And don't, don't take this as being the exclusive way in which process in a scientific way can be described. It's what works for me. It's what a lot of people use. And I do believe that you really have to understand it and all steps of it to be successful as a consultant because it's what you have to use as a thought provoker for yourself to help you provide that proper advice for those clients that you're going to have. All right? So we're going to go through each of these. Like I said, you know, we probably will finish this today, but if we don't, I'm going to let it linger over to next week, and we'll finish talking about it next week. If we do finish it today, what I'm going to go into next week is I'm going to talk a little bit about um, how, how you start a business like this. What are the things that, that you need to be thinking about and doing? And things like, I've already talked about how if you need to get a loan, if you need to raise money, um, if you need to do it as a second income while you're already earning income somewhere else, uh, what kind of a business form should you make? And this will be applicable wherever you live in the world. There might be different names for it in different places. Should you have a partner? Um, should you should you get what's the right time to have employees, or should you even have employees? What kind of a office space should you have, or should you even have an office? All of those kinds of things. That's the those are the details that we'll that we'll talk about probably next week. So now going into the scientific process, and I'm going to actually be typing in here, and I really would like to get some input from you guys. We're a fairly quiet audience, though, so I don't really know what, how much I'm going to get. Nobody put anything in about why they're here. Um, so I'm just going to assume that you're here because you want to really learn this. You want to go out there and make money as an environmental consultant yourself. So what do we mean about, about being a doer versus an observer? Let's start with that, and then actually I'm going to back up to that slide right before here. Observer versus doer. Um, and as a consultant, you need to do both. And you need to observe first, create a process, and then be a doer. So observation is a huge skill that you need to have. And you need to do it using all your senses. And here's what's interesting. Most people don't when they're observing. Most people have to really learn to use any of the senses other than their hearing or their eyes. Um, as human beings, our most dominant sense, if we have if we have it, which most of us do, is our vision. Our second most important or dominant sense is our hearing, and then our taste and our smell and our touch are all way less important for us generally as human beings. But I will tell you that if you can learn how to use those three other senses along with your sight and your hearing as an environmental consultant, you're going to be way ahead of the others that are out there. So today, I was out on a run. I think I mentioned that. And one of the things I run around is this beautiful property that I have where I have a whole series of ponds. And I am constantly observing those because I am constantly trying to upgrade them and make them be more ecologically balanced and more appropriate for the uses that I have for them. So it was real easy to observe with my eyes. And I observed a number of things. Well, I'm going to talk a lot about those. It also it's fairly easy to hear and get my observations. And so I was, by the way, I will talk about it. So when I was observing with my eyes, I was looking at water levels, looking at water quality, water clarity, excuse me, how clear it was. I was looking at the growth of what are called 
macrophytes or plants that are visual in the water. I was looking at the, that algal growth in the water, so the color of the water. I was looking at fish, if I could see them, and I did. And since I did see them, I was looking at their sizes. I was looking at their species, and I did see several different species. Um, I was looking at water level, but so all of things. I was also listening because it was a little windy. And I can judge, I've gotten to where I can judge wind velocity by its sound, where I'm at in various different places. So I can listen to the trees and to animals flying and other things, waves in an aquatic system, and I can make a pretty good estimation of wind velocity. I've developed a pretty good sense of touch as an observer in water, and I can tell by just putting my hand into water pretty closely what the temperature is to about a two degree Fahrenheit basis, about one degree centigrade typically. So I can put my hand in, a, in, a, in water and tell you within a couple of degrees Fahrenheit as to what the temperature is when it's in a range between freezing, 32 degrees Fahrenheit, zero degrees Celsius, and about 30 degrees Celsius, or 90 degrees about Fahrenheit. Outside of that range, I'm not very good, because I don't do it very often, which is a point. Good observation is learned. You all can gain it. You all can, every one of you. It's a really important skill to have as a consultant. So you can gain and become better and better with all your senses from observing. So we talked about three now, seeing, sight, hearing, and touch. Today I'll, I'll describe smell. Um, I was seeing water levels reduce in a couple of our ponds in our system. We have 18 ponds in the system. And where I see that water level reduce, and I know why it is visually, what I'm concerned about is whether when it's reducing that oxygen levels get depleted. And before I'm going to go in and measure those oxygen levels with tools, I smell. And when a body of water is beginning to have problems with its oxygen, it will have a different smell to it. And I've learned how to observe that and I can detect sulfur odors, I can detect uh, I can detect organic gas odors, methane, um, butane, propane, those are butane and propane are human-made gases. Methane is a, is a decay, biological decay generated gas. Um, so today I was using my sense of smell um, to um, to look at the, to, to try to find out whether there was an oxygen problem in these problems. Finally, um, taste. I didn't use that one today in this observance process I was talking about. I do use taste a lot, and one of our speakers last week talked a lot about using taste because she was doing um, a forage walk, a weed walk, around our farm here in northern Colorado, and she gave us a little probably two-minute lesson about how we could determine whether a plant we had never seen before was poisonous or not. And most of the senses that she was using for that were related to her taste. And so I can do similar things. I can taste water and know what might be wrong with it or if it was in good condition. Um, I can feel on my taste buds, I can feel how certain solids might be on my tongue, which are, is, a, is an element of taste. Again, all of this is learned. It is not something that you would just inherently have, and you can all get it. So as a specialist, an environmental consultant, and you could be a specialist in all those areas I talked about previously, air, water, soils, and even more specialist in some of them, and let's say water, 
you could be a very specific specialist for surface water. And even more, you could be a specialist for streams. And even more, you could be a specialist for um, year-round streams. And even more, you could be a specialist for water quality in streams. And even more, you know, so you follow it, you can get more and more and more specialists. But you need to be an observer, and you need to understand the scientific process, which involves the combination of observing and doing. Doing, I'm trying. I'm going to explain through the process because it'll be a lot easier. So, gosh, people are still coming in. Appreciate it. Enjoy you guys coming in. Please put in the question area um, two things. One, where you're at in the world. I'd love to know where my audience is from. And second. Why are you here? What is it you want to get out of this course? We are only just beginning it. It's going to be a number of more weeks. So if you put that in there, that'd be great. Um, and then secondly, if you ever have a trouble hearing me or seeing the screen, please just put a nine in there or say something about that. So now, now we're going to move into this scientific process in more detail. And as I said, we're going to start out with, uh, with hypothesis creation. By the way, Marvin from Nova Scotia, I know you, man, you're a regular, so thank you for being here and saying where you're at. So what is a hypothesis? Let's first talk about some, some um, definition here. Hypothesis is, is a idea, I'm going to use that word, an idea that you create about something that you want to gain information on. So your hypothesis could be, as you're looking, and I'm going to just put it in the context of what I did today, your hypothesis could be that algal quantities in this pond are higher than, you, than they should be, than you want them to be, because there's too much nutrients too many nutrients that are coming into the pond system. That is a hypothesis. So I could create that as a hypothesis. If I was studying air, and, and you've probably all heard of smog, or you've seen it, um, it when the big cities, most cities in the world have it, um, and it's a haze, and it's a contamination of air, if you had a hypothesis, and this could be a hypothesis, that smog in Los Angeles is caused by automobile emissions and the weather that locks the air in the LA basin in so that as those emissions occur, they get trapped and they don't go out into the ocean, which is right next to Los Angeles. Notice that was a much broader and bigger hypothesis than the one that I gave for a pond. Now let's go the other way, and let's go to a really simple one, and let's do it in the context of a built environment, a building, a, 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 something that, that a human being constructed. And let's deal with asbestos, let's say. And a hypothesis could be this simple. I have asbestos, and it is dangerous to building occupants' health. This building has asbestos, and it is dangerous to occupants' health. That's a simple. That's of the three different hypotheses that I hypothesis. By the way, the plural of that word is hypotheses. So of the three hypotheses that I gave, one was really complex. That was the one, uh, the second one that I gave. One was sort of in the middle, the first one related to the pond, and then the third was the most simple. So that is the first thing you should do in the scientific process when you're a consultant. If you're providing advice to someone, first thing you need to do is decide what are some hypotheses that you can create, and then as you provide your cons consultation, how are you going to test those, and how are you going to come up with some resolution to them um, by the rest of the process? So hypothesis creation, first thing you're going to do is 
always, always done when you start a project. You can have many of them. Have one or many. They can be simple or complex. And I see, Scott, that you've got either a cash question or a comment, a thought here. I'll get to you in a second. They can be um, they can be easy to answer or verify, or they can be difficult. Now, you're probably saying, what's the difference between simple and complex? And easy or difficult. The big difference, a really different spot. Um, something that is simple, that, for example, that last one I did, which is the hypothesis that we have asbestos in this building and therefore it is hazardous to the occupant's health. That is a simple hypothesis, but it is not easy necessarily to prove one way or the other. It is complex and uh, it's, it's difficult, excuse me. So it's simple but difficult. That second one that I gave was complex. It actually can be pretty easy to prove one way or another. All right? So those are things related to hypothesis creation. Okay, so Scott says, Scott Hassey from Minnesota. Welcome, Scott. I'd like to listen to more webinars like this, but usually work needing to get done to interfere. So oh, that's I know that. Just looking to expand my knowledge for the purpose of better serving and bringing the beauty and wisdom of nature to more lives. What an incredible and great Scott. By the way, you realize that as members of the economic action team, which if you aren't now, you will be just because you enrolled if you're brand new. Even we have two kinds of memberships. We have what's called the Eat Free and Eat Elite. If you're an Eat Free member, you can watch replays of all of our sessions for approximately a week after they're done live. If you're an elite member, you can watch them forever. Um, and Bob, Robert, I did take the mic away a little bit. Um, so it is a little thank you. Robert just pointed out that I actually put the mic a little bit farther away as I was typing. I should have brought it back. Uh, Robert's also got bad ears. So we can't always listen to him. Robert's a real regular with us. All right, any questions about hypothesis creation? And I gave three examples. They sort of met all these criteria. And if you're going to be a consultant, you're going to want to be always creating. By the way, a lot of these things in the scientific process, can they relate to anything and everything you're going to do in the whole area of economics. So it isn't just environmental consulting that they're relevant for. So I'm going to just quickly pause, take a little drink, and see if you have any questions or comments about hypothesis creation. By the way, this is a course that I would highly recommend any of you that have got teenage, age kids, have them watch some of this. Um, they learn a little bit of this now and they want to, if they, especially if they want to be scientists of any kind, want to get involved in any kind of scientific di discipline, this would be really good for them. All right, now back to the list. We just went through hypothesis creation. Now we're going to go to project design. So, what is project design? You've created a hypothesis, so now you need to come up with a design that is going to help you to answer whatever that hypothesis was. And you probably, if many of any of you come from the permaculture perspective, you know that what Bill Mollison taught was that we should live our lives in a permanent culture manner by coming up with designs in which we're going to live them by. Well, 
in a similar manner, if you're going to be an effective consultant and you've come up with a hypothesis, you next need to come up with a design to, to figure out how to answer that question, that hypothesis. So again, this follows hypothesis. Mine could be hypotheses. I'm going to actually make the plural. It should be written. If you just do it in your head, you're you're gonna you're gonna mess up. I almost guarantee you. Not not, not all the time. There are going to be some projects that you work on that it, it, it works fine. As you gain more and more experience um, in whatever the area it is that you're doing consulting in, you may have to write less down. And when I say written, that you know it means use whatever tools you have. Do it on your iPad. Put it on it. Put it in a text method message. Dictate it and have somebody transcribe it for you. Um, lots of different ways, but it should end up being there because more often than not, you're going to create the hypothesis, you're going to go through this whole process, and it won't happen in a single day, for example. Most consulting projects have some length of time associated with them. The longest that I've ever had in my career, a single project lasted 24 years. And I have had some that were completely going, having gone through this entire process we're going to talk about here in a single day. But I can probably count those on one hand if I could think about them. The one that was 24 years, um, I'm going to use that one here as an example, and then I'll be using it throughout. Um, and I, I think. I'm a story teacher, so I teach by talking about things that I've done and that are stories. So when I was in early stages, or not, not totally early, about four years into starting ATC, the consulting firm I talked about earlier, probably by that time there were 100 employees at it. Um, 1982, a guy drove his pickup truck into our parking lot, and I my office was such that I could look at people driving in. And I don't know why, but my desk faced away from the window, but I happened to look and saw this pickup truck come into our lot that was the entire bed was filled with pop bottles. I mean, just completely up to the top of the bed and caused me to look a little more closely and I could see they were filled with something, with liquid. Well. We didn't just have a consulting company. We also had a laboratory. And people would come to get environmental analyses done of all kinds of different substances, feeds and grains and, and soils from the ag industry, water of all different kinds from you name either industry or, or ag or literally you know, private circumstances air quality analyses of all different kinds. Obviously, people didn't bring air with them. We would, we would most often have to go out and collect those samples. Um, and then building materials, so different kinds of things that they wanted to know, whether they had lead in them, whether they had asbestos in them, and a whole variety of other things. And then we did a lot of what's called forensic testing and consulting. And who knows what forensics means? I'll give you a little bit to put that in there. Um, and then I'll answer it if nobody comes up with it. What is forensics? And forensics is a big part of environmental consulting, by the way. Um, but anyway, this guy came in, and um, he had this whole pickup truck of bottles. Um, he ended up driving the pickup truck around to where our um, entry into the laboratory was, so I, you know, I lost sight of it, and then went and talked to somebody and said, what was that pickup truck full of stuff? And, and they said it was a guy from western South Dakota, about six-hour drive away. He had driven over um, that morning, and this was probably about one o'clock in the afternoon, so he'd driven over six-hour drive, 
those samples have been collected from a variety of different water supplies on his 50,000 acre ranch that he had out next to the Black Hills in western South Dakota. And Robert says forensics is analysis after the event. Um, if you look that up on Google or something, I'm not going to tell you that that's wrong, but that's not quite what I was thinking, and so I'm going to give a little different answer. What's cool today is, again, you guys can all go to Google and just put up whatever you find, and I'm not going to say whatever that says is wrong. That's not quite what I was, what I'm going to ultimately say that it is. It's certainly, it is, it is analysis. That's part of it. It is analysis after the event. That's uh, true, but thinking about it in a little different way. Um, anyway, so this guy had, had brought all these bottles over. They came from a whole variety of different water supplies on his ranch because he was having all kinds of problems with his water. Um, one is that his water looked like 7-Up for the most part. It had bo it just bubbles all over in it. Um, two, his ranch house had blown up um, a little while before this. Um, and there's a whole story there. Three, he had springs on his property that were drying up, going away. Water was leaving them. Um, four, um, when if you if you have a water heater, they always have pressure release valves, and you can usually they have a kind of a nozzle you can push on it, and it'll release air from the water heater. Well, in his case, when you pushed on the pressure release valve and something came out of it, if you lit a match near it, it looked like a blowtorch. So it was not just air that was in that tank. Um, and it was something that was flammable. And then lastly, um, sometime ahead of him coming, um, a whole bunch of oil rigs had shown up in the front of his dwelling that he had on this property. He didn't live there, by the way. He had a ranch manager that lived there. He still lived about 50 miles away. He had bought this ranch to be his, um, to be his retirement situation. Sometime before collecting all these samples, bringing them to our lab, um, he had um, had these drill rigs show up in his front yard. And they were drilling for either natural grass or oil. And I'm not going to tell you a lot more of the story right now because it's off to this track. But what that turned into was us being retained as consultants to help him determine this hypothesis. And our, our hypothesis was a simple one, which was this oil and gas drilling had created problems with this guy, his name was Russ Carver, with Russ Carver's water. And we then went about a 24-year process to help him, provide advice to him, expert advice to him, um, to deal with a bunch of problems that I haven't even described to you yet. But, but our very first hypothesis we created was what I described, which was that the oil and gas drilling process had created problems with his water. So we had to do a bunch of things, this whole process, to figure out what those were. Um, so on a project design side, in this case with him, um, we created that hypothesis, and then we writ, rewrote down what we believed were the first steps we needed to take to help him. And this, in the context of being a consultant, we had to get paid for that. We, part of the definition, remember, of consultant is being a professional. And remember, professionals get paid. So usually, written documents that are coming up with a project design are called proposals. And we submitted our very first proposal to him. And our first proposal was that we didn't have nearly enough information that he had kind of screwed up bringing us water just by going out and collecting it in bottles. And a lot of it was not going to give us very good results, that they wouldn't mean a lot. And that our first effort to, to help him 
to solve what he perceived as a problem and to work on our hypothesis was to make a trip out there to his ranch to start making observations using all of our senses and to collect water ourselves because the way he had collected it was not going to be useful for accurately analyzing that water. And I'm going to use that as a good time to see about how, and I'm going to get to forensics in just a second, Robert, see about how many of you understand the difference between accuracy and precision. And their roles in project design. Don't feel bad if you don't even know what those words are or don't know what the difference between them are, because I'm going to tell you in just a minute that it's really important as it relates to consulting. And it oftentimes people are, don't understand the difference and they make big mistakes because of it. So let's go back to forensics in the context of which I was using it, in that you can do forensic laboratory work, which as Robert says, it's accurate, it is analysis after the event, but usually it, it, is, it is testing something using a method that is not standardized. It's forensic. It is a, a process of, of coming up with tests and ways to answer a hypothesis that are very much in the hands of the person doing the work to come up with the, the design and the testing process. So I'm going to just add to that definition of analysis after the event and say that it has to do with the kind of analysis you do, which is not standardized. Instead, it is, it is experimental and it is um, oftentimes Thomas Edisonian, you've heard me say that a lot of times in the way that I live, which is you use a thousand different ways to do something, and the, the, the 1,001st time you do it, it works. And so that's what Thomas Edison says. I didn't invent the light bulb. I just figured out 999 ways to not invent it, and I got lucky one time, and that one time is when I did invent it. So now, back to accuracy and precision. And I'm going to give a fairly simple de definition. So if, if you flip a coin a hundred times, how many times should it end up being heads? So I'm asking that. You guys answer, please. Somebody answer. Yes, that's the right answer. Robert says 50. It, it should be 50. And the more times you flip it, you flip it a thousand times, the closer results are going to come to 50%. The closer they get to 50%, the more accurate they are. Accuracy defines how close your measurement of something is to a factual result. So in the case of, of, of flipping a coin, it's based on the fact that there's only two sides, and if you flip it enough times, it's going to have a 50% of heads versus tails. So accuracy is how close whatever it is that you're doing in terms of measurement, comes to what the real answer for something you're doing is. So let's say this guy's water. We're going to go back to his water. You can imagine that that if if we we're going to prove his hypo our hypothesis that something in that drilling was creating problems for the water, we had to first kind of determine what those problems were. So I gave you a couple of hints of them. Well, one is it appeared the water had some kind of 
element in it that was creating gas that was showing up as bubbles. And it's very likely that those bubbles were what were expelled when you pressure released and put a match up into and you lit it. The reality is they were probably methane. Had to test that, but that was another hypothesis that you could make, a, a, a mini hypothesis. If, if in, in the water, if there was methane in it, and we could measure it, the accuracy of our measurement was how close that measurement came to what was the real amount of methane that was in the water. There was a real amount that was in the water, and how good our testing was in terms of its accuracy was going to be how close those results came to the actual amount. So that's, that's accuracy. And what's precision? Precision, in that same example, would be if we measured the amount of methane in the water 100 times and we got a really big range of results every time. Let's say the real amount of methane in the water was 50 in some amount. Let's say it was 50 parts per million. That was the real amount. And we got results of our tests one time of 28, and another time of 34, and another time of 51, and another time of 79, and another time of, of 12. And, and we did that a whole bunch of times. And we averaged all of them, and we came up with 50. It would say that we're really accurate. But if they ranged all the way from 12 to 80, Every time, one time we tested it, we got 12, and other times we tested it, we got 80. Other time we tested it, we got 32, and other times we got, maybe we rarely ever got 50. The average still ended up being 50, so it was an accurate test. It wasn't very precise. Precision measures the amount of difference there is from each test to the next. And when you're very precise, there's very little difference from time to time, from test to test. So in that same example, if we did 100 tests and we got 49, 51, 50, 49, 51, 50, 50, 50, 51, 51, 49, 49, 50, and we rarely got, maybe one time we got 47, and then another time we got 53. That would be very precise. It would be very accurate if the real number was 50, and after all that testing, we got 50. And it could be very imprecise if we had things that ranged from 12 to 80, and yet the average still ended up being 50, which would be accuracy. Okay? It would be very accurate, very imprecise. You really want to have results when you're observing things, and in a, in a, um, and the next steps we're going to talk about after design, you want it to be both accurate and precise, but which of the two is really more important? Accuracy or precision? No, that, you're wrong, Robert. So Robert says um, accurate, that, that accuracy means it's, it's qualitative. No, accuracy is very quantitative and that precision would be quantitative. They're both quantitative, um, but they measure different things. Merlin says that they're both important. Um, I would argue that Merlin is right. However, if you're trying to answer a hypothesis, accuracy is what's most important. And you can have a series of tests that are very imprecise it still gets you to an accurate answer, and you can live with that. If the real amount of methane in that water was 50 milligrams per liter, or 50 parts per million, it's the same thing, um, then you, you don't want to have a test that gets you all over the map, but the reality is if it is accurate, that's what you really need to give the right kind of advice, because you need to know you've got 50 parts per million or 50... Uh, milligrams per liter methane, and we're very confident of that. It's very it accurate, 
but and now you need to deal with it. Now, if you have poor precision, you do begin to question your accuracy. And with poor precision, you have to do a lot more testing. And ultimately, that costs a lot more money. Costs are very important when you're a consultant because the best consultants get the, get the right answers with the least amount of cost. Talk more about that in a later time, but it doesn't have anything to do right now with the scientific process. But it is vital as a consultant. The best consultants give the right answers at the least amount of cost. So they're accurate answers at the least amount of cost. So that means you, if you're imprecise, you have to do a lot more testing, and you're not. And your cost can't be as low as somebody who's very accurate, very precise. Their costs will be less. All right. So project design has to follow a hypothesis. It needs to be written, and it needs to be such that you can determine as you do it whether it's accurate or it's precise. So you think about accuracy and precision as you design a project for environmental consultants. Second thing, the fourth thing that a project design needs to be is concise and easy for the client to understand. Oh, I got to spell client right. And this brings up a great point. I'll probably get through one more of these. Like I told you I thought this would take two weeks to get done with this. So I'm not going to rush because it's important. You guys are all still here. And I'm not seeing any other questions. Please throw them in here, um, questions and or thoughts or comments. Um, but this is the biggest mistake that most rookie or early consultants make is they get really proud of their technical knowledge and they make their proposals or their reports, which we'll get to the back end of this, way too wordy and really difficult for clients to understand because they talk in their technical jargon instead of the layperson, their clients who don't know much about this or they wouldn't be hiring them. They give their both their written project design proposals and their project results in a way too wordy and a way too difficult to understand method. If you're somebody right now that's trying to learn to be a good environmental slash ecological scientist, so I'm broadening it, I'm going way beyond consulting. The best skill you should learn is how to write. I can't tell you how many people that I've had as employees, as partners, as staff who can't write very well, and it is what will limit them in expanding in their careers. If a person can write and, and write well enough that they can change their style to meet the needs of their clients, they're going to have a lot more success than somebody who is limited by their writing skills. So one last point here, and that is that this project design should be not just easy to understand and concise, but it should also be, um, I'm trying to think, Te technical, but understandable and not prosaic. And that's a tough one. I'm just going to, what does that mean? What is prosaic? There's two. There's really, you can, you can say there's this or that about everything, but there's kind of two kinds of writing. There's writing prose, 
and there's writing technically. Technical writing is very difficult, very, excuse me, not difficult, very different than writing prose. Prose would be like novels or stories or um, um, informal writing. Technical writing has a very specific skill set associated with it and is very different. And so you've got to write technically, got to be concise, easy to understand. And I've said that twice here for the client, but it can't be prosaic. So that's going to be sort of the end for our project design. And we're close enough to the top of the hour that I want to get any questions from you, sort of any final thoughts here, because we'll start out next time with project execution. So how do you take your hypothesis, your design, and now take it into um, the execution. And we're going to continue to use this 24-year project that I had. And there'll be lots of examples that I can take from it. It involves all the different media types we talked about, water, air, soil, built materials, and really the non-human organism side, which we'd be calling the, the ecology a lot of times. So that's where we'll start after just a little bit of review next time. Questions, comments from anybody. Um, if this was helpful, if you learned something, throw a one in. If you didn't learn anything, put in a nine. Got some ones. I don't see any nines yet. There's middle ground in there also. So, a couple ones. So, how are you going to apply any of this into something you're doing? Throw in, please throw in something there. If anybody wants to be unmuted and talk to me, I would love that, by the way. We have another session coming in 15 minutes from when this is over. We still got a little bit of time, got four or five minutes here. Put your little hand raise thing up in the, um, in the where there's where it's got by your audio, you know, where it says your got your speaker and I'll, I'll unmute you and you can ask me a question live and or make a comment. If you throw that little hand thing up, I will unmute you. I don't see any hands going up, so it doesn't sound like anybody wants to be unmuted. Well, I think we're going to sort of end it with that. Got a couple of minutes before the top of the hour. Thank all of you for being here. I enjoyed this immensely. I think I said this. I've never specifically taught this subject. I've indirectly taught all kinds of people about environmental consulting, but never have taught a specific course on it. I told you that I take the most pride in anything I've ever done in helping other people start their own businesses. So uh, I've worked one-on-one -on -one with any number of people that were, um, that were looking to uh, create a business and obviously given them advice on lots of these different topics. But again, never have taught a specific course. I have done Millions of dollars in client fees, Robert, in expert testimony, yes. Robert asks, have you ever done expert testimony for environmental issues? Yep, lots of it. Um, it, it usually, environmental experts are, are people that have all kinds of staff and others, so um, I've turned down more environmental expert witnessing than I've done because there's just always requests for it. But that 24-year project we're talking about with Russ Carver, I probably was in court there a thousand hours over those 24 years with depositions, with in the in the courtroom giving testimony, um, in the courtroom sitting next to lawyers and uh, helping them determine what they're going to be questioning witnesses about and who to choose as witnesses and so on. Um, and 
you know, we've done expert testimony on, uh, I've probably done it on 50 different topics. So yeah, I've done it. Any other questions or thoughts from anybody before we call it for the night and we move to our Q&A session that will be at Q&A networking and planning really for each that will start in about 15 minutes. All right, well, I'm going to stop recording. Thank you guys for being here. Thanks for those that have thanked me. Hopefully, all those that were quiet, which most of you were, I hope you learned something. I hope you got some value from this. Um, next week, again, we'll start with uh, really a lot on how do you design, what is, what's the execution after design. I'm actually going to talk a little more about design next week also, but then go into project execution. All right, going to stop recording and end the session. Last chance to throw. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT community podcast.